This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. This is Lewis Lapham with The World in Time, speaking today with the prize-winning historian William Dalrymple about his new book, Anarchy, the East India Company, Corporate Violence, and the Pillage of an Empire. You tell a dramatic story, Will, about the past living in the present and the present living in the past. The East India Company was founded 420 years ago in London, but its business model is the one that nowadays runs the globalized economy made by and for the predatory multinational corporation. Perhaps you can begin with the modus operandi before we proceed to the narrative. So I suppose this story opens in September 1599, and south of the Thames, Shakespeare is polishing off a second draft of Hamlet in his house a little downriver from the Globe Theatre. And a mile to the north of that, a meeting has been called by one of London's richest merchants, a man who calls himself Customer Smythe or Auditor Smythe. And Smythe had previously made a fortune importing currants from the Greek islands and spices from the Levant. Uh, But he had found his source of income threatened by what the Dutch were up to at the same time. And the Dutch had had the idea of rather than buying the spices, which every European needed at his table in order to cheer up his dismal food in, uh, in the 16th century, uh, rather than buying them from Cairo or the Middle Eastern merchants, the Dutch had had the idea of sailing right round the Cape and buying them directly from the producers in Indonesia, which, of course, undercut anything that Smythe was able to do. So in September 1599, he decided that if the Dutch can do it, uh, the English can do it too. And he called a meeting, not just for his 250 cronies who'd invested in the Levant Company, his previous uh, vehicle for for spice uh, imports. Uh, What he wanted was to get a much larger capital investment. So he invited a public meeting to which anyone could come. And we know who came because there were notaries at the door recording all the people as they walked into the Founders Hall in Moorgate Fields. And as well as the rich merchants, as well as the Lord Mayor of London hung with his chain of office and uh, the big uh, um, uh, ship owners uh, with their ruffs and their beards and their uh, stovepipe hats, Uh, There were people who described themselves as vintners, skinners, haberdashers, grocers, ordinary, ambitious merchant folk, anxious to give their maybe £10 or £20 of of extra cash in order that they could get a share of what was an entirely new concept in business. Traditionally, across most of the world, Almost all businesses were family businesses. The Medici Bank was a a family bank. The Marco Polos were trading with an uncle, a father, and a nephew. Uh, Then, in the the Middle Ages, the idea of guilds came up, whereby, say, all the wool merchants in Suffolk could club their capital together and go and uh, make an expedition to Bruges or the Low Countries to sell their wool. 
What was different about Customer Smythe's new model was it was something called a joint stock company, which meant that as well as all the other merchants working in the same field, pooling their capital, you could reach out to completely ordinary people, take £5 or £10 from each, and they wouldn't actually have a share in the, in the running of the business, but they would get a share of the profits. And this was a total revolution. It's one of the most important inventions in world history. And the East India Company wasn't the first of these. There'd been one before called the Muscovy Company, and then there'd been a slave trading one called the Sierra Leone Company. Uh, which was involved in, the, in, in the, the, the awful Atlantic Passage, taking slaves from West Africa and shipping them to the Caribbean. But the East India Company probably was the third or fourth such business in world history. And it revolutionized not just business, but Britain's place in the world. When the company was founded in 1599, the Mughal Empire, which then embraced not only almost all of India, but also modern Pakistan, Bangladesh, and about three quarters of modern Afghanistan. That huge unit was the richest empire in the world, producing about uh, 42% of world GDP. And for the first time in history, India was a richer country in terms of domestic product than China was. It had just overtaken China. In comparison, England at this stage, just uh, wrecked by the Reformation, cut itself off from its European partners, rejected Catholicism and the papacy, now really alone in the world, but for a few allies in Northern Europe, England had only 3% of world GDP. And it is more or less the achievement of the East India Company, if you can call it that, to basically reverse those figures. By the time that the East India Company was wound up, in 1858, Britain was producing around 40% of world GDP, and India was producing just 3%. According to Tolstoy, it's the enslavement of 200 million people by a commercial company. This is the thing that attracted me to this subject, because in my school lessons, we'd basically been taught to see, as I think generations of, of, of young British pupils had been taught to see this, as a national project. This was part of the empire, the, uh, the great British empire on which the sun never set, stretched from, from one end of the world to the other, uh, brought, we were taught, civilization, right. railways. Cricket. I was taught the same thing. I remember the story. <laughs> and um, it was given this you know, spin that, this, that in the whole, the whole British conquest, and it was part of this national story of, of glory and, 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 and honor. In reality, what was well known in the 18th century, but was whitewashed and sort of polished and, and, and uh, airbrushed, if you like, uh, by the Victorians in the 19th, was the fact that the British conquest of India was not the British at all. It was done by one commercial company operating out of one office block, five windows wide. In, in Leadenhall middle, Street. In Leadenhall Street in the middle of the city of London, where the where Lloyds of London, the insurers are. By, by, you know, 30... Clerks and merchants. I mean, it's an incredibly lean operation, considering its power and its wealth. Even 100 years into its history, there were only 35 employees in the head office. And it operated uh, its own shipyards uh, with its own ships, but very, very little real estate in its home country. But as the 18th century progressed, 
it became more and more powerful in India. And, and the reason it did that was it had backed, in a sense, the right horse. When the British first had their East India Company, they were very much the poor relations of the Dutch. This is now the, the great age of Dutch trade. Uh, all those gorgeous Rembrandts are being painted, all those burghers in, in black hats skating on rivers and, and all the rest of it. Um, and the Dutch basically had better financial instruments, deeper pockets, better ships, better navigators. And they kicked the British East India Company out of the place they really wanted to get to, which was the East Indies. And famously, in, as part of the settlement at the end of one of these wars, they swapped the Spice Island of Run, which the Dutch regarded as the most uh, uh, lucrative small patch of earth uh, in the globe, for a muddy island in the Hudson River called Manhattan. Uh, and this is part of the same story. Uh, and, and the British, having effectively lost to the Dutch, the spice trade in the East Indies, realized that there was actually another way of making profits in the East, and that was through textiles. And their loss to the Dutch happened to coincide with the moment that India, and particularly the east of India, the, the province known as Bengal, was the industrial powerhouse of the 18th century. There were one million weavers in Bengal at this period, producing everything from incredibly cheap, well-made cotton goods to beautifully painted chintzes to textiles of such incredible fineness that they were known as buffed hawa, woven air. And the British became the the means by which these textiles reached the world, not just Britain itself, but the whole of the Middle East and Europe, and also the New World. And such was the scale of cotton exports to Mexico, for example, that Mexico actually suffers deindustrialization in the 18th century, because so much Indian cotton is arriving at, at, at rates that, that Mexican weavers simply can't keep up with. So this is a properly global business. And the, these the small Elizabethan company with only this 35 staff soon becomes this sort of monster, which by, let's say, the 1780s has conquered a great deal of coastal India, has used uh, its conquest to plant opium, which it illegally exports to China, uh, in the largest narco operation in history. Uh, the Chinese wanted opium imported as much as the Americans want crack cocaine sent up from Colombia today. And so the British did it underhand through smuggling and a whole variety of other uh, underhand methods, very similar in, in many senses to, to narco operations out of Latin America today. And uh, with that fortune, they then legally bought Chinese tea, which, and this is the period when suddenly tea is the big drink uh, over the Western world. And they import it to not just Britain and uh, Europe, but also America. And of course, in the end, it's, it's, it's East India Company tea that is dumped in Boston Harbor at the beginning of the American Revolution. So what you have created by the beginning of the 19th century is not some stumbling Tudor company run by a few sort of uh, Elizabethans in dirty streets stumbling around in codpieces. What you have by the, by the middle of the 18th century 
is the first major multinational corporation. In the early part of your book, you start with the, with the beginning, the first British merchants arriving on the East Coast in 1613, I think, and then but gradually moving themselves around the tip of the subcontinent and up the East Coast to Madras and eventually to Calcutta. And you summarize that in, in, in a very long opening chapter. But, and the, the East India Company gradually gaining ground and power and also recruiting its own army, training British, I'm, I'm sorry, Indian natives. They're called sepoys, right? Correct. All right. So now the heavy conquest begins when? 1760s, the Battle of Plassey, uh, Robert Clive. I mean, so, this, is, this is when we begin to end, uh, you know, this is when a merchant company becomes its own empire. This is the extraordinary transformation because the East India Company for its first hundred years is perfectly, I mean, it's a very large trading company, but it, it's, it, it's very conventional in the sense that yeah. it, you know, it buys, takes gold and silver from London and it arrives in, on a foreign shore, it buys things there and it trades them back in Europe for, for a profit. But in the 18th century, everything changes and the East India Company transforms from a conventional trading company into a company that's also a kind of mercenary army and uh, a territorial conqueror. And the reason this happens is, um, in fact, nothing to do with India in, in, in many ways. It's to do with Anglo-French rivalry in Europe. At the same time as the English have created a, uh, an East India company, a Compagnie des Indes has been formed in France. And um, the Company des Andes is this uh, is is more of a royal affair. It's not quite the same capitalist uh, middle class uh, merchant affair that, that that the English one is. But in this period of conflict, when for about a hundred years the French and the English are at each other's throats, not just in Europe but in uh, the Caribbean, uh, in America, in uh, in yeah, Asia. Yes, this is the yeah. Seven Years' War. I mean, I mean, this is the same period. Exactly. As, yeah. What you guys, I think, call the, the French and Indian War. We call yeah. it the French and Indian War, but, I mean, this is the, you know, the incubation of George Washington. Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and also the sustained conquest of India by the East India Company, is, you know, runs parallel with the American Revolution. So it's, it's a very interesting story, and it starts with, a piece of uh, dodgy intelligence, again, like like uh, some more contemporary wars today. Uh, an intelligence report is delivered to the East India Company in Leadenhall Street that say that the French are outfitting and sending a massive fleet. What year is this? This is, I suppose, 1755. Okay. And uh, this, com- this, this report arrives in, uh, in London, and the company reacts by, by first of all, sending immediate messages to Calcutta and Madras that they must rebuild their walls and prepare defences because the French are coming. But secondly, they persuade the Admiralty to send out the British Navy, in other words, the government fleet, to protect this trading company's interests against the French in India. And the fact that the governor of Calcutta in Bengal, this new British settlement on the, the river Ganges, where the, where the Ganges begins to uh, debouch into the ocean. Um, 
the fact that the British decide to rebuild their fortifications without asking the Mughal governor, Siraj Daula, provokes Siraj to go and just attack Calcutta. And uh, in, in an incident that became famous in, in, in later history, that, but which was probably uh, much less bloody than it, uh, in reality at the time, the surviving um, Brits who, who, who aren't, don't flee and aren't killed in the conquest are shoved into a small prison called the Black Hole, which, again, generations of school children have been taught about the Black Hole of Calcutta. Uh, and it's a kind of symbol in, in British imperial mythology for the uh, brutality of, of, of Indians and the need to civilize them. Uh, now, in reality, the, the, uh, probably only about 40 people are killed in that, that night who, who die of suffocation and, and lack of water. Uh, but it, it provides the causes belli. And by pure fortune, the fleet that the company has sent out has just arrived with perfect timing at Madras. So rather than effectively negotiating a surrender and, and telling the, uh, the governor that he must, um, that, that they're very sorry and could they come back and trade again, they send the Royal Navy. And the Royal Navy takes Calcutta, it destroys the French, uh, the French uh, trading port of Chandanagar, the great rival of Calcutta. And at that point, something very important happens. Upriver in Murshidabad, which is the provincial capital, incredibly rich and prosperous city where all the funds from all these weavers uh, are channeled into the Mughal government. Uh, the richest banker who is, like the, who is to Mughal India what the Rothschilds were to 19th century Europe. He's called the Jugat Set. And the Jugat Set simply sends a message to Clive saying, we've seen your military power. If you come and help us with our palace coup and get rid of the governor, and we want to replace him with someone uh, uh, less violent, uh, I will pay you two million pounds personally, and the company can have 20 million. And Clive, of course, he, he can't check this out with the governors in England because they're a year away by sea, so he just goes and does it. And it turns out that uh, through treachery and bribes, it's a very easy victory. And Clive overnight becomes the richest self-made man in Europe. And the company suddenly finds itself the puppeteer controlling a new puppet governor of Bengal, this rich, rich province. Stop there for a minute and, and tell us what is the Mughal government of Bengal in the second half of the 18th century. I mean, sure. the Mughal Empire, I mean, there are provincial governors. I mean, the nominal uh, emperor has his seat in Delhi. But then there are other fabulously rich provinces and, and fortified cities. Correct. And, and that empire be begins to unravel from within. Correct. During this, okay, so that, again, the timing of the company is very fortunate. Exactly that. So around the same time as Henry Tudor is beginning to pull everything together in Tudor, England, a man called Babur, who was born in, in what's modern Uzbekistan, in the Fergana Valley, he gets a bunch of warriors together, takes Afghanistan, and from Kabul launches an attack on, uh, on India. And this is the foundation of the Mughal Empire. It rises to terrific power. This is the civilization which created the Taj Mahal, which built the Red Fort, which invented the Mughal miniature. Uh, beautiful art, exquisite metalwork, um, miniatures of such unbelievable fineness that even today you just gasp as you look at them through magnifying glasses. Uh, but also, you know, the richest 
state in the world. 42% of world GDP, richer even than, uh, than Ming China, its great rival. And uh, this state reaches its peak uh, in, in the 16th century. But on the death of the, of the sixth great mogul, Aurangzeb, the whole thing begins to, uh, to, uh, to become decentralized. And it's the provincial governors who begin to take power in the different regions. And the richest of all the provincial governors is the governor of Bengal. And uh, what's he called? A Nawab? He's called a Nawab. Uh, okay. And the British anglicized that to Nabob. Right. Which is the origin of the English slang knob. Right, yes. Uh, so, right. <laughs> so if you say someone is a, uh, is, is a grand knob, right. uh, you're, you're actually just using a bastardized Urdu word. Right. And um, so these provincial governors are very, very rich figures in their own right. And they, uh, and they send money to Delhi. And the Jagat Sets invent this new financial instrument, the Hundi note which allows them to transfer vast sums of wealth from provincial Bengal, which can be picked up by a check in the royal capital of Delhi without a, a single gold coin moving up the road. It's all done by, by checks and by uh, okay. early financial systems, which, uh, which allow money to transfer without physical uh, metal moving geographically. And uh, so you begin to get this alliance between the East India Company, which evil and ruthless and plundering as it may be, is a capitalist organization that understands the importance of commercial contracts, repaying loans with interest, repaying loans on time. And in addition to the military superiority that the company has brought to India from Europe, where Frederick the Great has invented whole new ways of fighting warfare with uh, screws on the back of cannons that allow you to alter the cannon very minutely and, and, and very accurately, uh, advances in ballistics, the socket bayonet, the musket, the flintlock, uh, file firing, the infantry square, all these extraordinary techniques of infantry warfare which have been revolutionized warfare in Europe are transported by the company to France. And this, along with the alliance with Indian bankers who realize that the company speaks the same language as them and will be the safest investment for them, allows the company to turn from a simple trading company into a territorial, a ruthless territorial monster. And uh, when you say plunder uh, the, the company, I mean the country, what do you mean? You, you mean they're taking, uh, it's colonization. I mean, it, it's the early form of you know, imperialism. I mean, they're, Correct. They're, they're, they're taking from the country bullion, gold, and and uh, profit, and they're not um, they're not trying to mix with the with the natives. I mean, the, the Mughals when they come down, you know, Babur. I mean, those people try to you know mix with the local natives, but the British don't. The, well, these are just you know. Objects oh, the, to the, be plundered, right? The, the second part is, 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 is more complicated. First of all, we'll talk about the plunder. The, so the, the word loot, which you know, is, is a common word in English today, is in fact an Urdu word from India. It's the Urdu vow, uh, verb to plunder is lutna. And uh, it enters English at this period for the very good reason that the East India Company is 
plundering India and bringing back vast amounts of wealth to Britain. Every time a company official at this period returns home, if he's a high-ranking, successful uh, guy, he often brings back a million or a million and a half in Indian gold and silver. Uh, again, it's often done by 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 check. So he, he he deposits his wealth with the company in Calcutta, and he takes it out in London. Uh, but this leads to this drain of a million, a million and a half, vast sums by 18th century standards. You can add at least a couple of noughts uh, today. And um, this reduces the richest area of India within a generation to a dust bowl. That's Bengal. Bengal. And Bengal, Bengal which had been, you know, this, this incredibly, it has two harvests a year. It's got very rich soil. It's where the Ganges silt settles. So uh, you can use it to fertilize the land. Incredibly big harvest. But through effectively asset stripping this area in a way that a modern multinational can do if, with, a, with a corporate takeover, this happens on a vast scale across Bengal after 1765, when, when a second great battle is won, the Battle of Buxa. And from this point, the company simply controls North India. There's no one that, can, that, can, that they're afraid of. Uh, th- their armies have shown they can defeat anyone. And they take advantage of this and behave in the most monstrous fashion. So when a famine comes in 1770, the company does absolutely nothing to... Uh, to, there's no famine alleviation. There's no. There's very few soup kitchens. There's certainly none run by the company itself, and a million people die in a summer. That's one fifth of Bengal, and there's corpses in the Ganges. There's rotting bodies in the streets of Calcutta. Whole areas of uh, of West Bengal are are just left uh, empty because everyone has died of starvation. And the first year that this happens, the company doesn't give one rupee remittance of tax. Everyone has got to pay their, uh, their tax bills exactly up to the, what the company says. And they send out their soldiers, the sepoys, into the villages. Um, and so the first year, the news arrives in London that despite the famine, uh, the tax revenue has managed to come in at exactly the rate of the year before. And everyone in London, the shareholders, vote themselves an increased dividend from 10% to 12.5%. So as one million Bengalis lie dying, uh, the, 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 the rich shareholders in London are having parties and popping champagne. And this is too big a scandal to, uh, to get out. You begin to get um, long and heartfelt letters arriving from appalled company servants who anonymously send things to the Gentleman's Magazine or to uh, the Edinburgh Review or uh, the equivalents of Lapham's Quarterly in 18th century yeah. uh, uh, London. And um, there are satirical plays put on in the Haymarket Theatre with Clive lampooned as Lord Vulture uh, and um, the, the Chief Justice called Jaundiced Braywell and, uh, and these sort of uh, satirical <laughs> figures. <laughs> it's like some of our description of our current... Very you know, similar, you know, yeah. Vulgar merchants and... Yeah, all right. Go exactly. Ahead, yeah. you, you know the scene. <laughs> I, we know these people. <laughs> they, we they have them among up. us today. They right? pop up generation after generation, but they seem to be yeah. a particular particular uh, uh, harvest of them at the moment. I, I have an aside. There, and a couple of points in your book, I run across the name Dalrymple. Correct. Is that one of your ancestors? So my family were exactly the sort of people who were involved in the East Indian Company. We were kind of very minor Scots gentry with... Uh, 
ideas and aspirations well above our incomes, which uh, and so the younger sons in my family got sent out to India, uh, generation after generation. Many of them died there. One died in the Black Hole of Calcutta, uh, and uh, we are one of these families which uh, built their prosperity and and maintained their estates not on the the harvests made in Scotland, but on the harvests brought back from from trading in. Uh, but you yourself have a great, or so I infer from reading the book, a, a great love for the Mughal culture and, and, and art. And I do. I mean, aesthetically, the Mughals are one of the great high points of, of, of world civilization, in my view, in that you know, the beauty of Mughal architecture, the Taj Mahal, the glories of Mughal painting, which anyone can see on the the, the walls of the wonderful Islamic gallery in the Metropolitan Museum. I was visiting it yesterday. Uh, these are some of the great treasures of world civilization. Today in India, it has to be said that the Mughals have a have a uh, increasingly uh, fraught place in Indian history because we now have a Hindu nationalist government uh, in Delhi, uh, and they regard the Mughals not as great bearers of uh, one of the great high points of Indian civilization, which is how previous generations of Indian used to look at them, uh, but instead as wicked invaders from Central Asia uh, who were the sort of forerunners of the jihadis of today. So the, the whole legacy of the Mughals is very much under uh, dispute in India. Names of streets in Delhi named after Mughal emperors, particularly one called Aurangzeb Road after the most... Uh, uh, warlike and least uh, ecumenical, shall we say, of the, of the Mughals, the one who, who insisted on taxing Hindus and, and who helped break up the empire. That road was renamed only last year. Uh, and so, we, so what's so interesting is that the, a book about the 18th century, which might potentially be something about dead history, feels completely contemporary on a number of fronts. Not only, yeah. are we, are, you know, is it the, the East India Company the seed of the modern multinational corporation? Not only is this the story of how the world was colonized, but, uh, but we also have the whole story um, of, the, uh, of the Mughals and, and, and the end of Islamic rule in India. Uh, and all three of these incredibly hot topics. And you deal with them all... Uh Extremely well, because you, you, you write so well. I mean, you, you write as well as some of the uh, Mughal historians whom you quote. Who, who, I have one particular Mughal historian that I'm, I'm particularly thrilled with. And I remember when I, was, I, mean, I spent six years working on this book. And as any historian finds, you know, a lot of it is trudged through archives. And you're, you're, there's quite a lot of time when your eyes are sort of slightly glazing over at yet another page of 18th century handwriting. Um, and one of the greatest pleasures was finding a historian called Ghulam Hussein Khan. And Ghulam Hussein Khan is this incredibly urbane Mughal nobleman who has seen in one generation his entire world fall apart. The Mughals who were refined, exquisite, powerful, ruling this mighty empire at the peak of its brilliance, seen the whole thing shatter, fragment, and fall apart by not rival Islamic invaders, as might have been the case in the past, but by a bunch of stumbling Western merchants. And there's a wonderful quote by a Mughal official who, who, who first sees this, and he says, 
What honour is left to us when we are told what to do by an uncivilised bunch of Western merchants who have yet to learn to wash their bottoms? Right. And, and this is very much the attitude. And Ghulam Hussain Khan, in four volumes of his masterpiece, The Seir Mutakarin, which is a, a Persian for the uh, review of modern times, he writes what is really the first sophisticated analysis of colonialism by an Indian author. It reads like Ebud Said, written not in 1970, but in 1780. And he sees for the first time what colonization means, not just the loss of wealth, but the loss of confidence in the entire civilization. He reports how the craftsmen who used to make music, or the dancing girls who used to dance, or the painters who used to paint exquisite paintings, or the architects who were commissioned to write uh, to build spectacular palaces, all these people have just fallen out of work because all the British want to do is import their furniture from London uh, and, and, and build British-style buildings. Uh, and they don't want to listen particularly to Indian musicians or uh, watch Indian dancing girls, though some of them do. Um, and, uh, and so you get an incredibly sophisticated prose of Ghulam Hussain Khan, who I think is, is my favourite witness to the whole period and, and the voice I probably quote most you get for the first time the sense that his whole civilization has, ha, has disappeared like a, like a mirage in the desert. That it just, it, it's exposed and all his class is now useless. They don't want Mughal cavalrymen uh, with their heroic charges anymore because instead they, uh, they, the British prefer to recruit peasant farmers and train them up in firearms. So the old skill of, of, the, fine, of the fine archer or the, uh, the, the brilliant lancer uh, or the sophisticated swordsman who could outfence his rival, all that is over in one generation. And uh, one of the great pleasures of this book has been to work with, I, I work with a wonderful scholar called Bruce Winnell, who is one of the, the greatest scholars of 18th century Indian Persian. And we went over the last six years to many Indian archives and, and found previously unknown Persian language chronicles of this period, often written by men like Ghulam Hussein Khan, who've seen their world vanish in front of them. And by translating these things, uh, we've, we, we've found an incredible closeness of reportage uh, of colonization from the Indian side. Uh, and complementing this with the, with the East India Company records, of which, which the one thing that can be said about the company is that being a bureaucracy, they are incredibly good about keeping records. And in the British Library alone, there are 35 miles of East India Company records which, of course, no historian can do more than sample. <laughs> right. You also have a particular fondness not only for the historian Ghulam, but also for the, the last Mughal emperor. Who he, was he? And, and give me a very brief summary, because his life, again, encompasses the whole of this story. Absolutely. And Shah Alam is, is in a sense, my central character. My previous books on 18th century India have all been sort of micro-histories, and I love to read historical narratives where you have, as you do with a novel, a small cast, and you follow them through various traumas or whatever, or battles or their lives, uh, uh, and, and you get to know them. And, and writers, particularly my great model for historical writing is, is I don't know how well he's known in, in America or if he's read at all, but Sir Stephen Runciman, who was the great crusader yes, yes, of the Crusades. Right. And um, 
what I, the trouble I had with this book when I was first conceiving it and beginning the research was I couldn't see a, I couldn't see a main backbone on which to fit the narrative because it's such a, a sweeping period. And then I realized there was one man who in a sense encapsulates the whole story, and this is Shalom. He's 12 years old when the first Persian conqueror, Nadir Shah, rides into Delhi and six weeks later leaves with the peacock throne and 8,000 wagons filled with loot and plunder, which he takes off to Persia and Afghanistan. 80 years later, Shah Alam in his 90s is this blinded, wounded, humbled old man in a ruined palace. The emperor, as you said so nicely, of an illusory empire, uh, sitting in, on the palace in Delhi. Uh, and his life encapsulates the, the whole story uh, and is the mirror image, if you like, of the, of the rise of the company. Uh, what the company gains is Shah Alam's loss. So I set the rise of the company against Shah Alam's decline and fall. Uh, and that's how the, the, the structure of the book really works. All right. I mean, the last two battles that you come to are in the year 1803. That's the year that, that your Shah Alam hands over the... Sovereignty. Sovereignty to... Due to uh, Wellesley? Correct. So yeah. two brothers yeah. yes. turn up. And um, despite their own aspirations and what they think of themselves, the reality is that they're not frightfully grand at all. They're minor Anglo-Irish gentry. And they show up 1780, 90, something? 1789, 1790, exactly right. Yeah. And the oldest one is called Richard, and he's the governor general. And his younger brother is called Arthur Wellesley, who later becomes famous, of course, as the, the Duke of Wellington. The Duke of Wellington, right. Okay. So and these two brothers. The so these two brothers arrive in India, and between them, they finish, really, in one sweep of, of seven years, the company conquest of India. And again, the excuse is the French, because Napoleon has just come to power in France. Um, Britain is blockaded by continental Europe. The, uh, Napoleon's last continental enemies have surrendered. Uh, and Britain is on its own, rather like in, in sort of 19, uh, 1940, before the Americans joined the war. It's, it's uh, lost its American colonies. It's lost its American colonies. Uh, the, the Yorktown, uh, yeah. Washington has defeated uh, the, the, uh, uh, the British state. And so anyway, Richard Wellesley comes out with a view to using the East India Company's private army, which is now literally twice the size of the British army in 1799. And he uses this private army very cynically to take on Britain's enemies, the French. And this is not, he is, an, he is a Francophobe and he does have a very active imagination, but actually his, his fears are right because Napoleon is in contact with various Indian uh, war leaders, particularly an amazing man called Tipu Sultan, a self-made uh, conqueror who's taken over many of the richest areas of the South, has governed extremely well and profitably, and has built an extraordinary empire that's very much the equal of the, of the company. And Wellesley declares war against any power in, England, uh, in India which has a French mercenary army attached to it. And that means, first of all, destroying Tipu Sultan, which he does in 1799. And then he takes on the last great rivals of the company, who are the Marathas. And the Marathas 
started off as a peasant army in Western India. Uh, they were Hindu and they hated the Mughals who were Muslim. And in a single generation led by an amazing war leader called Shivaji, they erupt from Western India, conquer the great Mughal port of Surat, harass Mughal armies across the south and central India. And by 1800, they are the last really strong regional army left. And Wellesley borrows more money from the Indian bankers who happily give it to him. And he increases the size of his, merch, uh, his mercenary army from 120,000 to 200,000. And with these new recruits, he takes on the Marathas. And this is the first great battle of the future Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley. And Wellesley says after Waterloo that however hard a battle that was, it wasn't half as hard as the battle he fought against the Marathas. But the Wellesley want to set up, uh, set up themselves, set up the company as a state power. So talk about, all right, the conquest of, of the uh, East India Company by 1803, but then we have another 140 years of the British presence in, in, uh, in India. When does it become a state uh, operation, and, and, and from whence do we get the Raj? Sure. So this is one of the other great themes of the book, the power of the state, against the power of the multinational corporation. And obviously, this is a, an issue that's with us still today. It, with us yeah. late and soon, I should say. <laughs> and um, initially, it looks as if the company has all the cards in its, in its hand. Uh, in 1697, which is just under a century into its existence, the company is caught for the first time bribing parliamentarians with shares to extend its monopoly. Now, this is the first case of corporate lobbying in history. First time. What, what year again is that? 1697. 1697. Very early. Wow. And the governor of the East India Company plus the Privy Chancellor who's taken the, the bribes both end up in the Tower of London. And, you know, the world we have today in Washington where ExxonMobil has contracted 20 senators, 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats, uh, that kind of world where corporate lobbies, you know, in the real world, genuinely offer inducements and campaign contributions and all the rest of it to political candidates in order to secure corporate uh, ease of corporate business. That world starts with the East India Company. And initially, it looks like the company, which you know spends nearly a quarter of all government spending in uh, in uh, England is matched by the company's spending. They build the docks. Uh, they build, uh, you know, they have the largest merchant fleet. They, they control about a quarter of British exports, the rest being the related trade in sugar uh, out of the Caribbean uh, and the whole slave trade, which is not something the company gets involved in, but is related because to have a cup of tea in England, you need tea from China, which the East India Company brings you from one direction, and you need to put into that sugar, which comes from the West Indies, which comes from the other direction, and the whole related but uh, even more horrible story of, of, of the Atlantic slave trade and, uh, and, and the plantation slavery. Well, one of the American patriots in, in Boston and was afraid of the East India Company taking over the United States. I mean, and, and was very aware that the tea that went into Boston Harbor was uh, EIC tea. This, is, this is, was one of the great surprises 
uh, when I was researching this, and, and I found a wonderful paper by the historian Emma Rothschild, who'd spent a long time in the Patriot archives. And, you know, it's, it's in a sense, you know, in, 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 the, in the, the modern narrative of American independence, the whole existence of the East India Company is completely forgotten. But, you know, it wasn't chance that the thing begins with the Boston Tea Party. Uh, it's absolutely central. And Americans are, American patriots are reading the reports in the Gentleman's Magazine and in Blackwell's Magazine of the million starving people in Bengal. And they know that, that all the tea tax and all that issue, which have been uh, uh, becoming more and more an issue in, in America, no taxation without representation, all that chant. Um, they saw that, they, many people believe this was just the precursor of letting loose the East India Company uh, on the Americas. Now, in fact, it wasn't a real worry. I don't think the East India Company, you know, didn't have the charter to 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 dominate the trade of uh, the West as it did the East. But well, enough people were worried about it for it to be an issue at that period in the 1772, 1773, just on the run up uh, to the to the Boston Tea Party. This is there is a lot of talk in American uh, rhetoric and, and and newspapers and uh, in letters about the the fear of the East India Company. But then over the course of the 19th century, I mean, we have, by 1803, the East India Company stands triumphant, the emperor of the world in, in, in India, but the British government nationalizes well, the company over the, the next, uh, you know, a, first half of the It's a slow process by which, having started off as, as an entirely private company, which was which had a charter to not only to trade, but to govern over great chunks of the Eastern world. Then I told you about the 1772 famine, this moment that the, yeah. the, 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 the a million Bengalis die in a famine. Now, for two years, the company manages to maintain its tax revenues uh, at, through violence, uh, despite the famine, despite the enormous mortality. But having asset stripped Bengal by year three of the famine, uh, they simply just can't, however they, however much violence they use, they can't extort the money from their, their um, peasant farmers. And the profits of the company suddenly fall off the, off the roof. And once news of this becomes current in England, first one bank, the Air Bank, collapses in a terrific bank collapse. Then 30 other banks collapse in a month across Europe, like dominoes. And it's very much like the subprime moment a decade ago, yeah, um, with banks collapsing, uh, and the East India Company, of course, is too big to fail. It really is. Yeah. The, the government cannot let it go. So the company goes to the Bank of England, which is a new institution that's just been founded, and it asks to borrow half a million pounds, and that's passed out. Then they come back a week later and say, we need another million. And the Bank of England grants this. And then they come back a third time and say, we need more. And the Bank of England says, we can't do it. So Parliament has recalled from summer recess, and it becomes a parliamentary issue. And so what you get at the end of this long debate is the 1774 Regulating Act, oh, which right. is the moment that the, it, it's the same as you know, these government bailouts we have today. When the company is bailed out to a tune of two and, a, two and a half million pounds in the end, on condition that it becomes closely monitored by London. And regulated, and so at this point, I suppose you could say it becomes like a public-private partnership or something like that. Then finally, when it, the company messes up most spectacularly, uh, in 1857, you get in India the largest anti-colonial revolt in history. 
In England, it's still called the Indian Mutiny. In India, it's proudly known as the First War of Independence. And 1857. 1857. And it very nearly succeeds. Three quarters of the company's mercenary troops, the sepoys, turn their bayonets on their British officers. And it's by the slightest hair's breadth that the company manages to hold on to England. And then having succeeded in defeating the rebellion, there follows the most vicious repression where well over 100,000 innocent civilians are slaughtered in North India, mainly Delhi, Lucknow, Kanpur. And again, like the 1772 famine, uh, this is something that can't be hushed up. There are so many corpses. There's so much death. So many people are horrified by it that the company is rolled up by parliament and what we today would call nationalized. And its navy is disbanded, its army absorbed into the British army, and it becomes the Raj. But what we forget is that the Raj actually, you know, which occupies so much film time on British television and yeah. Sunday night dramas and all the rest of it, the Raj only lasts for 90 years. But the period of the East India Company is 200 years. So it's like the, the, the bit of the iceberg under the water. We see the bit, uh, the, the, the bit of the, the, the poking out of the water, this pyramid in, in the ocean, which is the Raj, and it's so visible. And we know those images of uh, men in solar topis and, and, and yeah. empire-building shorts marching around. Or, you know, the similar tea parties and the croquet and the smiling well, Maharajas yeah. and all the rest of it. You, you, have, revived, <laughs> you, you have revived this, the longer and really more interesting story of the East India Company. And it's a truly wonderful book, Will. I Thank mean, I, 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 it's a joy to read. And, and Thank you, William Dalrymple, for speaking with us today about his new book, Anarchy, the East India Company, Corporate Violence, Pillage of an Empire. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.